0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening (laughs) to Taryn Forma. Summer storms have started rolling through our neck of the woods, meaning that summer is meandering along and we've reached the end of July. Like clockwork, it's time for another news roundup episode. And dang, did we have a lot of headlines to sort through this month. I'm Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Amiskwetchiwiskygan, or Beaver Hills House, so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Pappas Chase Cree territory. The Pappas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. As we talk about the news of fire, floods, and orphaned oil wells, we ask you to think about your history with, and connection to, the land around you. How do you recover your relationship with a natural space after it's been transformed? Can you pursue livelihood in the midst of destruction? We're sharing some bad news stories today, but please take this opportunity to see the world around you as something renewed. After destruction comes creation. So think about how you, me, and the people who have lived here for a time immemorial will rebuild and reconnect with the land around us. This week we're catching you up on all the headline environmental news you might have missed in the past month. There's been extreme weather events, companies abandoning and orphaning wells, and numerous updates from land and water defenders across Turtle Island. We even have a few good news stories. Let's get started with some of the extreme weather events that the world saw this month. First up, here is Jacinta Roengueza reporting on historic flooding in Western Europe.
1: This past month, Western Europe experienced a scale of environmental devastation and destruction caused by flooding that has not been seen in decades. It began in Germany, but before you knew it, parts of Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Austria were also inundated with flash floods. The scenes were shocking. Aerial photos showed roads and bridges collapsed, even entire towns submerged. Videos showed cars and homes vanishing in a matter of seconds as they were swept away by the roaring waters. Thousands of people were injured, and even more people were left without power or potable water. Most tragic was the number of casualties. Emergency rescue crews struggled against the currents to evacuate as many people as possible. But as of July 23rd, 177 people in Germany and 37 people in Belgium had been confirmed dead, and hundreds were still missing. As the recovery process starts, more and more questions begin to arise. What caused the flooding to occur in the first place? What role did climate change play in this historic event? What role will it play in the future? And maybe most importantly, what should be done to mitigate its risks? As you might expect, days of torrential rainfall transformed normally docile rivers and streams into violent torrents of floodwaters. In Germany, some of the worst-hit areas were Rhineland Palatinate, North Rhine-Westphalia, and Saarland. These areas saw 24-hour rain totals between 100 and 150 milliliters. In Reifershed, over 207 milliliters of rain fell in a nine-hour period. This is especially abnormal for regions whose expected rainfall is approximately 87 milliliters for the entire month of July. And it was this kind of extreme rain that caused the waterways in the Rhine and Meuse River basins to swell their banks and flood nearby communities with low land elevations. The same phenomenon occurred in the border regions of neighboring countries, like in the southern Wallonia region of Belgium, which borders North Rhine-Westphalia, and in the southeastern province of Limburg in the Netherlands. So just what role did climate change play in this historic event? According to a recent study published in the Geophysical Research Letter, the connection to climate change is actually twofold. First, Greenhouse gases have reached average global temperatures by 1.2 degrees above the pre-industrial average. These rising temperatures have resulted in a warmer atmosphere capable of holding more moisture. A 1 degree Celsius rise in temperature has the potential to increase the intensity of rainfall by 7%. The second part has to do with the jet stream. The temperature at the Earth's poles is increasing at a rate 2 to 3 times that of the equator, which weakens the jet streams of the mid-latitudes over Europe. The weakening of the jet stream has caused slower-moving storms, which stagnate in a single locality for much longer. The studies show that the slow-moving storms put communities, like those in Western Europe, at risk for high levels of precipitation and an increased chance of flash flooding. So what does that mean for the future? Well, given current emission trajectories, these types of intense rainstorms are expected to turn from once-in-a-century floods into relatively common events. The study shows that by the year 2100, these types of slow-moving storms are expected to be 14 times more frequent across the whole of Europe, have higher peak intensities, and be much longer in duration. But as many have been quick to point out, Europe is no stranger to floods. Floods already rank amongst the most dangerous natural hazards in northern Europe, However, many of the worst affected areas demonstrated shortcomings of the European Flood Awareness System, the Flood Warning System established by the European Commission. Between July 10th and July 14th, the European Flood Awareness System sent out more than 25 warnings about the Rhine and Meuse river basins. But the existing emergency warning system leaves regional authorities to determine the appropriate course of action, And in Germany, that meant the various decentralized municipal officials across 16 federal states. When left to municipal officials, misunderstanding of water management infrastructure or underestimation of environmental risk can lead to poor or even no course of action, leading to devastating results like in Germany and Belgium. Some believe this is representative of the West's hubris when it comes to the topic of climate change. There remains a general belief amongst Western nations in historically mild climates that extreme weather events are primarily the domain of developing countries. But there is no right place to be in the midst of climate change, and floods don't care about your socioeconomic status. As experts have long noted, unified national emergency systems need to be at the forefront of climate change mitigation policy. Moreover, serious thought needs to be put towards the development of climate change-adapted infrastructure, in addition to significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. For Terra Informa, this is Jacinta Royangeza.
0: Thank you, Jacinta. Next, here's Andrea Miller talking about British Columbia's current wildfire situation.
2: Last week, British Columbia triggered a province-wide state of emergency in response to the devastating wildfires overtaking parts of the province. The state of emergency will be in place for 14 days, and the declaration will help the province coordinate mass evacuations and secure accommodations for evacuees quickly and effectively. At the time of writing this, crews are fighting nearly 300 active fires, most of which are concentrated in the southern interior, in the Caribou, Kamloops, and southeast regions. This fire season is on track to be a record-setting year, and so far the province has identified over 1,100 fires. That's double the number of fires during the entire season last year, from April to October 2020. More than 3,000 local and out-of-province firefighters, helicopters and planes are on the front lines battling the blazes, with more expected to arrive in the coming days. 3,000 square kilometers have already burned across the province, resulting in evacuation alerts and orders that have forced thousands of people from their homes and forced tens of thousands more to prepare to evacuate at any time. The need to evacuate can happen very quickly, and evacuees are taking shelter in hotels or with family and friends. Some may even choose to stay behind. This makes it difficult to fully understand the number of evacuees. It also means that during such a dark time, many evacuees may not have their community around them or know if their loved ones are safe. That was the case in Lytton, B.C., where evacuations took place in a matter of minutes. On June 30th, the George Road fire destroyed the village of Lytton, home to about 250 people. The region is home to the Lytton First Nation, of which around 70 members live in the village, and more than 900 live on reserves along the Fraser River. In an interview with CBC News, Lytton First Nation Acting Chief John Haugen said he is certain that the nation will come back together and rebuild, while they may have been displaced the community's ancestral ties to their territory are strong and "we know our people want to return home because they love that place" End quote. the Inkemip Creek fire is burning in the territory of the Osoyoos band between the towns of Oliver and Osoyoos at one point spanning 68 square kilometers evacuation orders were in place for parts of the town of Oliver and the nation issued evacuation orders for nearly 200 properties, some of which have now been rescinded. In BC, fire season is colliding headfirst with an influx of summer tourists as the tourism sector attempts to recover its losses from the pandemic. This means that accommodation for evacuees, which is already difficult to find, is at a premium, and tourists are being asked to reconsider their travel plans. Many popular tourist destinations, like Vernon and Sycamus, are also under evacuation orders. Parts of Alberta have been experiencing hazy conditions as winds bring the wildfire smoke west, with multiple days reaching a 10 plus or very high risk on the Environment Canada Air Quality Health Index. The Air Quality Health Index measures the presence of common air pollutants that affect human health, primarily ozone, particulate matter, and nitrogen dioxide. Wildfire smoke is made up of a combination of gases and fine particulate matter, or PM2.5, which can enter our eyes and respiratory system and pose a serious risk to our health, especially for those with chronic conditions. A combination of drought, extreme temperatures, and high winds is creating the ideal environment for these fires. Before the devastating fire in Lytton, the community broke the all-time Canada-wide temperature record, at 49.5 degrees celsius. Literally adding fuel to the fire, some regions have gone weeks without rain. Steady winds are fanning the flames, with the BC Wildfire Service issuing a wind advisory for wind gusts of 50 to 70 kilometers an hour in the southeast of the province. This is creating a very difficult situation for crews, as fires can rapidly spread or change directions. These conditions mean that something like a spark from a highway accident or a lightning strike can quickly lead to new fires. In a recent news conference, BC Premier John Horgan reiterated what many evacuees and concerned citizens already know, that, quote, this is a graphic reminder of how climate change is with us, end quote. Global climate changes will alter precipitation patterns resulting in wetter climates in some areas and drier climates in others. Warming trends will make these precipitation patterns more extreme, and the drier areas are only getting drier. This is already a record-breaking year for wildfires, and because of climate change, we are seeing fires in B.C. and across Canada and parts of the U.S. that are starting sooner in the season, coming on stronger and faster, and lasting for much longer. Wildfire evacuees in BC are being encouraged to register online with emergency support services. To get support, find the closest evacuation centre, or get hourly updates on this evolving situation, visit the Emergency Info BC website or at Emergency Info BC on Twitter. For Terra Informa, this has been Andrea Miller.
0: Thanks, Andrea. Now let's take a look at who is behind Saskatchewan's largest and most recent case of orphan wells. Here's me, Elizabeth Dowdell, with the details. It's a familiar story for Albertans in the energy industry, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, a large energy company with lots of money decided to build as many oil and gas wells as possible, because the economic times were good and demand was high. The king, i.e. the provincial government, offered subsidies and reduced tax rates in return for giving good jobs to all the labourers in the land. But then dark times came. The oil and gas became harder to retrieve. Unconventional drilling was required. Prices and demand dropped due to plague. The large company decided it was time to move on and build new wells in another kingdom. A kingdom with easier oil and a more willing king. When the big company left, it sold the old wells to small local companies companies that didn't have deep pockets to build new wells, or the money to clean up all the old wells and infrastructure that dotted the land. And the dark times continued. Now, even if demand peaks and prices rise, the small companies will never be able to make enough money to pay for all the wells, workers, and cleanup. In the face of such misfortune, some companies have disappeared leaving wells orphaned across the land. Others have turned to insolvency, asking the king and all the subjects to take over their wells, clean them up, leaving the local economy and environment poorer, and a burden on all of us. That's the gist of the story, anyways. This newest retelling comes from Global News Investigates, with the headline the small Alberta oil company behind Saskatchewan's latest and largest ever case of orphaned wells. That small Alberta oil company is Bow River Energy Limited, a Calgary-based junior energy company that sought bankruptcy protection in late 2020. The company held licenses for 671 wells in Saskatchewan, 394 of which need to be sealed, then reclaimed, and 141 of which just need to be reclaimed. This is the largest ever group of sites the Saskatchewan Orphan Well Fund has taken over from a single company and is estimated to cost at least $25 million and require two or three years to complete the cleanup. Other debts come to around $6 million and include money owed to farmers, ranchers, small businesses, First Nations, rural municipalities, and the Saskatchewan government itself the same government that now owns all the dirty wells and other old infrastructure that Bow River Energy Limited just failed to pay for. In the case of Bow River Energy Limited, buying mature infrastructure was a business plan and a pattern. But in this case, the company struggled to pay debts immediately after expanding and buying a large group of wells from Husky Oil in 2017. From 2018 to 2020, the company met with the Saskatchewan government several times, asking for crown land rent and other fees to be waived while the company was struggling. The government said no, so in 2018 the company just stopped paying rent. And in 2020, they stopped paying royalties altogether. This is startlingly normal behaviour. When you compile the number of orphaned wells and their associated costs, the numbers will truly start to dazzle you. Saskatchewan has about 75,000 inactive and abandoned wells in the field. In Alberta, those numbers are 97,000 wells that need to be closed and reclaimed, and another 71,000 that require just land reclamation. I could rant on and on with news stories about how citizens in Alberta and Saskatchewan are being piled high with debt from their energy industries, but I will stop and articulate my feelings instead. The thing that I find so frustrating about these stories is that a new one comes out every couple of weeks and at the same time every couple weeks the king and all his cronies i.e the provincial governments and energy ministers in Alberta and Saskatchewan declare that a robust regulatory and oversight system is in place very complicated and important formula is used to make sure only financially sound business transfers are made and the system is operating exactly how it should be. I don't want to trash fairy tales, so I'll just say that this story, after hearing it again and again and again, sounds like a large steaming pile of make-believe to me. I'm a person of working age, and I'm going to spend a long time paying our provincial taxes. So the growing cleanup costs, poor public return on oil and gas investments, and ongoing environmental degradation makes this story bad news to me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, produced in so-called Edmonton, Alberta. This week, we're rounding up the environmental news headlines from the past month. So far, we've covered flooding in Europe and wildfires in Western Canada, as well as orphan wells in Saskatchewan. We have two good news stories to wrap up our final segment. Some good news from Saskatchewan. Earlier this month, CBC ran the headline: Cowessess unveils new solar project aiming to become greenest First Nation in Canada. On Tuesday, July 13th, the power was switched on at the unveiling of the Cowessess First Nation solar installation. About 800 panels were installed in an array system on five local buildings. These should generate 321 kilowatts, or enough to power 60 homes and offset energy costs in the community by $20,000 annually. More important than the cost savings is the positive impact this project has already started to have on the community. Located in the southeast of the province, the First Nation recently made headlines for the discovery of 751 children's bodies found in a mass unmarked grave at the Maryvale Indian Residential School. Well, the pain of this tragedy will never be forgotten. The official launch of the solar project is hoped to bring a bright spot and some healing for the community. In speaking about the solar installation, Cowessess Chief Cadmus DeLorme noted how the project will create ripples in the community and education system. With solar panels on five community buildings including the school, senior centre, mall, water treatment plant and band office, renewable energy technology has become an accustomed sight. The project was also a hands-on affair, with locals investing more than 2,000 hours assembling the solar panels, and Cowassess band member Ashley Dawn became a certified installer. Dawn now works full-time installing solar panels for a different energy company. As Chief DeLorme explained, having solar right in the community creates a pathway for youth to see themselves in university, becoming engineers and technicians who can work with solar and other renewable energy systems. The community did need some help bringing it all together and worked with Skyfire Energy to accomplish their goal. Skyfire has worked with First Nations across the country to bring renewable energy to communities and sees renewables as a way to build economic growth and good jobs. Economic and energy sovereignty are good things for any community and something all First Nations deserve. These solar panels are moving in the right direction, and so this story goes into the good news category. Speaking of renewables, solar and other renewable energy sources are exciting to install, but all of that material has to come from somewhere, and that often means mining. Our second story comes from the north and stars the Baffinland Iron Mining Corporation. Who, in a perhaps surprising twist, do a good thing for the local community and environment. On July 3rd, the Donutsiak News ran a story about the MidMetallic Hunters and Trappers organization asking Baffinland to cancel icebreaking this season in the waters off the north point of Baffin Island. A recent study found the number of narwhals in local waters had fallen by nearly half, and concern is high. Based on a study by third-party consultancy Golder & Associates working for Baffinland, the number of narwhals in Eclipse Sound have dropped dramatically from 9,931 to just 5,019 between 2019 and 2020. The reason for the narwhals' decline is unclear. The Hunter and Trappers organization felt the mine was to blame, but Baffinland was unwilling to make the same conclusion. Heather Smiles... Smokesperson for Baffinland, agreed there was a decline but suggested it could be any one unique change or a cumulative group of changes that were responsible. Narwhals are sensitive to sound so driving ice breaking ships or underwater pilings, both activities the mine is known for, are harmful to whales. The noise causes stress and can lead to skinnier or undernourished whales. Undernourished narwhals are a serious concern for people like pond inlet hunters who depend on the whales to provide food for themselves and their families. Baffinland has a permit to break ice every year, between July 15th and October 15th, so it can get its ore to market. During shipping season, the mine transports 6 million tonnes of iron ore a year, and has plans to double that along with building a railroad and port at Milne Inlet a small arm off Eclipse Sound. Adaptive management plans include modifying the times when ships operate to break ice or using alternative routes. While these are conservation strategies, the Pond Inlet hunters felt they were not enough and asked for a full ban on icebreaker activities. And would you believe it? Baffinland said yes. After sending letters to the Nunavut Impact Review Board, gaining support of the Hamlet mayor, and waiting for a few weeks, the Pond Inlet Hunters, and the Mitty Metallic Trappers and Hunters Organization tasted success. On July 14th, just one day before the icebreaker season was to start, Baffinland agreed to halt their spring activities. In a written statement, Baffinland President and CEO Brian Penny spoke to the values of community input, the precautionary principle, and adaptive management in making their decision. Tensions are likely to rise again over the mine, But for now, soft ocean sounds will greet the narwhals as they stop in at Eclipse Sound on their migration route. Some of those might feed a family in Pond Inlet, and some might continue on their way to make new narwhal families of their own. And to me, that is very good news. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to Andrea, Jacinta, Hannah, and myself for contributing to this month's stories, and I've produced this week's episode. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, Or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.